turns out the WHO and the CDC were making up the rules about social distancing the whole time. A leading American educational institution has proof, and we're going to talk about it. Plus, we discuss CRT because your kids are going to be getting this force-fed into them for the duration of their education in the public school systems, and you need to be prepared on how to encounter them with facts. And what happens when men become boys? Today, we discuss the real problem of American inequality. This is your favorite night of the week. Yes, it is. The Deep End with Tim Hatch. I am beloved, the man they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John that slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to The Deep End with Tim Hatch. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Derek, for that wonderful introduction that you made for us. And I'm so glad to be back with you. 7.30 now on Tuesday nights with The Deep End. And it is episode, believe it or not, 22 of season four. 22 episodes. It's felt like three. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things happening. And I got so much to talk about. I can't do this for long, this little introduction. So make sure that you click the uh, subscribe button at youtube.com slash the deep end TV. That's where we want you to go every single week. YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. Make sure that you're liking the video. Make sure that you are subscribing to the channel. Um, YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. And make sure that you're clicking that little notification bell so that you get updates as to when we are live. There it is right over here. The little notification bell, but it's below me. Uh, so that you'll know every time on your smartphone device when we are live, right? Um, there's also swag available on the internet at thedeepend.tv. You can pick up more than just the Tumblr. There's a beanie, there's t-shirts, there's all kinds of stuff, low stock items that we are trying to get rid of. So there's a lot of sales available at thedeepend.tv. Make sure you check it out. Would love you to pick up some material. Leave a review on your podcast app, especially on Apple Podcasts. That would be much appreciated. Um, the Deep End is growing every single week. More and more subscribers. So glad that you are all here. Welcome to the radio stations. Welcome to the Facebook audience. Welcome to the Waters Church audience, but also everybody, make sure you're getting over to youtube.com slash the Deep End TV. I got so much to talk about, so much to talk about, and we got to get right to it. So let's go into Deep End News. Deep End News, the news you choose if you could choose news. All right, time to talk social distancing. What if I told you that a study from one of the world's leading research institutions found that social distancing at six feet is not actually safer than social distancing at 60 feet, six, zero. How would you feel if you found that out? Well, according to Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that is a fact. From the New York Post, the title of the article, you're no safer from COVID-19 social distancing at six or 60 feet, study says. This is from MIT. This is not from the community college down the street. This is from MIT. And so social distancing inside uh, at 60 feet is no safer than six. That's what, that's what they say. No safer than six feet. Where do they get these numbers, by the way? Uh, it's all about exposure time, according to the article. So the exposure time actually matters more than the distance you are from somebody. And the report actually widely challenges a lot of the COVID-19 prevention techniques that we, our country implemented uh, for the last year. Uh, it, it actually says in the article that there's little benefit uh, to the six foot rule, especially when wearing masks inside. Distancing isn't helping you. Um, the MIT engineering professor Martin Bazant uh, authored the study and he told CNBC everyone in whatever space they are in is roughly at the same risks 
no matter risk, no matter where or how far apart they are. This from the article, a direct quote, what our analysis continues to show is that many spaces have been shut down that in fact don't need to be. You don't say, Martin. Oftentimes, the space is large enough, the ventilation is good enough, the amount of time people spend together is such that those spaces can be safely operated, even at, oh, what are you saying there? Full capacity, Martin? Yeah, full capacity. So all this limited capacity nonsense, uh, not scientifically proven. And the scientific support for reduced capacity, yeah, right here, in those spaces, is not very good. Ladies and gentlemen, the wool has been pulled over your eyes for 13 months. Are you ready to get back to living your normal life? Is anybody out there willing? I never left it, by the way. I never left my normal life. I have been traveling. I have been going to the park. I have been going to the stores. I've been going to church. Nothing's changed for me. Maybe for you. Depends on your fear level. I guess also it depends on your pre-existing conditions level. But if you're relatively healthy and you're not susceptible to pre-existing conditions, but my father is and he's out there living his life and doing his thing and he's much older i think he's in what is he on i know he's in his 70s mid 70s and uh he's also uh, in remission from cancer and he's out there living his life <laughs> because the wool has been pulled over our eyes for 13 months i'm getting sick of it i'm getting sick of everybody bowing to fear and we've got to start telling the truth and the science is coming out more uh information from this article uh from martin bazant quote we need scientific information conveyed to the public in a way that is not fear-mongering amen yeah that's what he says in the article uh so there you have it cautious people covid cautious people you can go to home depot uh but guess where else you can go you can go to church that's really my bone to pick with people. You can get yourself back to church because it's time. It's time to stop living in fear and remembering that the Lord is your shepherd. Amen. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not fear though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? Though We should change an updated uh, uh, version of that text to though I walk through the shadow of the valley of COVID-19, I will fear no evil and I will follow the science which is showing that i don't have to fear it nearly as much as the politicians and dr fauci tell me to but what i'm really upset with a lot of times in the church is we see people that will go to the mall they'll go to the restaurant they'll go on the plane but they won't go to church and you got to realize that this is exactly what the enemy wants you to do you're playing right into his hands why do you feel that you are safer in the shopping mall than in church when all the statistics now all the science is proving that you're no safer and you have to explain yourself to God one day, not me, <laughs> Christian, those of you who are staying home and saying, I'm going to be safe, going to be safe, but you're going to all the other places. You're going to have to explain yourself to God, not me. Why did you think it was right and good for you to go to everywhere else except to church? Look, my church is living proof. We have been open since May 24th of 2020, every single Sunday, never closing down again, by the way. And we have had no outbreaks, not one, not one. Yeah, people have gotten it. Yeah. Not from church services. <laughs> They've actually gotten it from their family members. They've gotten it from conversations with people who had it. Um, but they didn't get it from church. And we took precautions and we actually installed this new system that eliminates a lot of airborne illnesses. And I'm actually glad for that because I think we should have done that before COVID. And we're going to keep it after COVID. But at what point, cautious Christian, masking up and social distancing, crazy Christian. What point are you going to stop 
using different rules for the church than you do for grocery shopping. You grow grocery shopping, right? Like I have an image on the screen to kind of like, you know, show you what's really happening in people's hearts. Grocery shopping is greater than corporate worship. That's what's happening right now. I got to go grocery shopping because I need to eat or I got to go to the restaurant because I need to eat. And, and let me just do a little demonstration of what happens at the restaurant because it drives me nuts. Let's say this, this is my cell phone uh, case, but let's say this is my mask. This is what happens at the restaurant. This is what you do. You walk in like, th like this. You walk in like this for 10 feet and you get to your table and you take off the mask. And then to leave, you go 10 feet to the door and you got to put the mask on. Why? This is insanity. This is, does not make sense to me. I'm sorry. I'm just done with this. I am done with this nonsense. And then the other thing about oh plane travel, and I've gone on a lot of planes lately. Here's what you do on a plane. You get on the plane. You, you, you go to the airport. You get on the plane. You get, you get seated in your plane. You get buckled in. You, the whole thing, you take off. And then 10 minutes into the plane being taken off, then you can take off your mask to have your little snack. Why don't they eliminate the snacks? Eliminate the snacks. If it's such a problem, if we're supposed to wear these things, why do you serve snacks? But then I, I take my snacks and I eat them and then I got to put the mask back on. Why doesn't COVID transmit when I'm eating my snacks, but it does transmit when I'm not eating my snacks? It doesn't make sense. Why does COVID transmit when I'm walking to the table at the restaurant, but I'm seated and suddenly COVID says, oh, they're seated. I won't spread now. This is, this is where we are. This is where we have come to. Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> Grocery shopping. I need to eat. That's more important than church. Um, is it? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, from the word of God. The word of God is our daily bread. Amen. The word of God is our food. And the psalmist so appropriately said in Psalm 122 verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Are you glad when you go to God's house, are you glad when you go and worship God? I mean, honestly, can we get back to this? Can we get back to this? You say, oh, that's Old Testament. They had to go to temple. Okay, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together. How are you, how's your together meetings going? Are they in existence? But as, and, and then he says this, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So what is he saying? He's saying you better go to church more often the closer we get to Jesus's return. The more, the, the closer we get to Jesus' return, the more often we should meet together. Why? Because when you get away from the church, you burn out in your spiritual life. That is a fact. That is a fact. When I don't go to church, I get ornery, I get nasty, and I get angry, and so do you. You get more sinful, sin, sin inclination, you get, you get distracted, and we're going to talk about that in our Life of David talk today, but you've got to get back to church because the church feeds you. The church is your family. The church is your gathering place. Yes, we did online ministry because it was a necessity during the lockdowns, but some of you still not returned, and it's time to get back. It's time to get back and gather together more than ever before. Now, on the exact opposite end of not going to church because I want to be very careful, on the, op on the opposite end of that spectrum is a guy that is my personal hero in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. His name is Pastor Ar Arthur Palowski. And this guy, this guy is my hero. He is a superhero. He is a super pastor. I want to show you the video. Guess what happened? We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's the guy. Ouch! Yeah, that guy. Yeah, Arter, he kicked out the uh, health inspectors from his church during uh, Easter services in Calgary. It's a small church. I think it's about 350 people. And then he kicked them out, and they did. And they walked out. They had to get out. 
Well, guess what? They came back because that's what government does. You give them power and they don't give it back. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. We're giving our government power and they're not going to give it back. So they came back again this past week and Arter did not back down because he is a mighty man of God. And I want to so I want to show you this. This is so good. You got to see this video. Uh, let's play it. And you're going to see me just re react along with you uh, today. So check this out. Well, friends, we have a SWAT team in our church again, coming authorities. So I'm going to go out and see what they want. Oh. Yes. Oh. Hello, Walter. Hi, Arthur. I wonder if I could just give you a couple of things in the court order. This is for you. Um, it basically outlines the fact we have the, uh, the, the right to enter today. Um, what I would really... Um, Please. You don't have to get into a personal space. Thank you. Well, you're in my personal yeah, exactly. space, so... Can I, can I explain to you, Arta? I'm not can really I, interested I, in what I you explain, have to say. Can I explain to you? I'm uh, reading. Okay, okay. The, what we'd want to do is make sure that we're not going to disrupt anything in the service. The idea uh, is... This is, uh, you have a wrong... Well, this is not street church. Um, this is not street church. You have a wrong... Both, both, both... Uh, now, now he's about to get a little bit worked up. Both, both churches are detailed on there. So if we could come and do the cave of Adulam is not uh, is not the registered. He's talking about the name of the church right now. And this is not street church, so you have a wrong. You gotta okay. do your homework first before you come, okay? You have a wrong. You have a wrong organization. Okay, that is for you, Arta. Uh, yeah. I will send it to you by email too, if you'd like. I just wanted to be able to come today and then at least explain the order, serve the order. And then we can stand what they want to do, they no, want to stay in the back of the service. No, 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 no. You can contact my lawyer. They okay, want to stay my in lawyer the back takes of the care of this. I'm not interested to listen to any word you have to say. I do not cooperate with Gestapo. I do not talk to the Nazis. You came in your uniforms like thugs. That's what you are. Brown shirts of Adolf Hitler. You are Nazi Gestapo, communist, fascist. I do not cooperate with Nazis. Talk to my lawyer. You're not allowed here. You're not welcomed here. And I'm not going to cooperate with Gestapo like you, okay? So is that fair enough for you? I'll Talk to my lawyer. Here he comes. Here it comes. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in talking. You see, Man, you see, this is what the Gestapo is doing. You're coming, to co you're coming to the place of worship to intimidate and to harass. So you can make an appointment. Lady, listen to me. You can make an appointment another day. It's Sunday morning. You Gestapo! Another day! Not this day! Not this day! Not during the church! You understand? Make an appointment! Watch this guy on the left. Okay! So go! See you later on. Have a good day. <laughs> you are sick. That's what you are. And rightfully so, you change your uniforms to black because you're exactly acting like the Gestapo of old. Sickening. I want you to hear a what this country came to. Coming to the place of worship with their uniform, with their guns, again, again, during the time of worship. They could do it another time. They could do it another day. No, they are following the orders of the fearer 
Hitler, communist. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wicked, evil people. Wicked, evil people. Unbelievable. It is what it is. If Canadians will not rise up and stand up, if they will not come to their senses, mm -hmm. while there is still a time, mm -hmm. while there is a time to wake up and push this evil, there will be absolutely no, no rights whatsoever. I just like that, guys. Um, you can go to his channel on, on YouTube and you can watch the rest of that video because it is so powerful and he is exactly right. If we just keep backing down, if we don't stand up for what is right, for worship, and check out the YouTube comments underneath his video because it's all atheists saying, I, you know, I don't believe what you believe at all, but I will fight for you to have your services and this is government overreach. Um, I talked about this last time we were together about Arthur and that is that the church lacks courage the church just lacks courage and you need courage today to be a christian is going to require you to have courage today like never before so i have a name for arthur i want to call him um super pastor arthur palowski super pastor good for you arthur keep fighting keep standing keep doing what you do because it matters to so many people it matters to me and I hope that Christians all around the world are waking up to this and paying attention because this is important. We've got to be the church uh, for, this, for this generation. And so that's the deep end news. And I want to go back now, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to a little bit of a discussion about Vody Bakum's book. And so a little bit more on book review here on the deep end. Get this book. Get this book, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to get it. Fault Lines by Dr. Vody Bakum Jr. We're going to talk about it again today because I would say that every parent listening to me right now needs to get this book in their hands. They need to read it, even if you have to force yourself to read it. Uh, how about this? Buy it on your smartphone, on Audible, and listen to it. That's what I'm doing. And just listen to the facts. Listen to the how he details um, the influence of CRT and the absurdity of CRT and what it's going to do to our country and to our culture and, most importantly, Importantly, to our young people, you parents have got to educate yourself because your kids are going to school and they're going to get this nonsense shoved down their throat. Now, um, lest you think that I'm just your typical uh, oppressor, you know what that means? I'm an oppressor in CRT. That's what I look at me. Don't I look oppressive? I uh, uh, oppressing. <laughs> What's the word? I am an oppressor. Why? Because I am a white heterosexual Christian cisgender male, and I am the archetype oppressor of CRT, uh, critical race theory. Now, now, lest you think that this is just the, the anger or the fear of a uh, uh, white heterosexual Christian cisgender male, uh, afraid that I'm going to lose my privilege, I take you to an opinion piece in Newsweek by a guy named Obaid Omer, and he is also from Canada, and he wrote this piece in Newsweek, and I'm amazed that Newsweek published it. The title of the piece is, I Left Islam for Liberal Values, Now Woke Liberals Are Embracing a New Religion, Ibad Omer. And he talks about this early in his life. He was a Muslim practicing Islam in Canada, developed liberal values, became more secular after studying the Quran and other Islamic texts. He talks about this in you can read the article yourself. He talks about how he left Islam because of the misogyny, the oppression, the violent practices, specifically regarding blasphemy laws. 
So he went off to um, work in the Canadian military for many years, and he returned to Canada in 2014. He said the country that he came back to was completely different than the country that he left. And what he saw happening in Islam is now happening in woke politics. That's what he said. This is, this is again, Omar, uh, Abid Omar, sorry, Ob- Abid Omar. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I left Islam for liberal values. Now woke liberals are embracing a new religion. Just more facts. He said that he left a culture that was steeped in the sentiment that I might disagree with what you say, but I'll fight for your right to say it. And he returned to a culture that said, I disagree with what you say and shut up. (laughs) That's basically a quote from the article. He talks about how the term, and this is important, the term racist was applied to anyone who criticized or questioned Islam. Isn't that interesting? The term racist in, in his Islamic days was used to shut up and shut down speech that criticized or questioned Islam. And he says the very exact same tactics are being used by the woke mob of today. It's amazing how it's working hand in hand with the tactics of radical Islam. Then he lists the similarities to fundamentalist Islam and the religious like faith-like aspect of critical race theory and intersectionality. Uh, he talks about how they limit speech, Islam limits speech, CRT limits speech. That's what, a, that's what a religious cult has to do. It has to limit speech. It has to create blasphemy codes. He talks about blasphemy codes. You can't talk. Um, you can only talk about certain topics in specific ways. And if you talk wrongly, then you are shunned. You are an enemy of, of Islam. You are a, a target of jihad, um, Allah Salman Rushdie. Uh, and so you can only talk about Islam in certain ways. Well, you can only talk about CRT in certain ways or racist topics in certain ways. He talks about freedom of thought is under attack in both Islam and CRT. He said, when I heard people uh, asked, this is out of the article, let me read it exactly. When I heard people asked to check their privilege or introspect the ways they have been racist, it sounded like the inner jihad that Muslims are supposed to perform to make sure that they are on the correct path. Uh, he talks about how it limits the freedom of experience expression. Uh, in Islam, he says, giving offense to the pious is considered a grave sin. Now, that depends on who the pious are, right? So you can't question certain people in Islam or you are uh, you are uh, an enemy of Islam. And now in CSJ culture, critical social justice culture, uh, he talks about the fact that if you give offense to marginalized people, uh, then you also will be uh, deplatformed or canceled. And then, of course, this last one that he mentions in the article, well, no, two more, power struggles in Islam, uh, jockeying for who has the right to represent the faith, the Shia or the Sunnis, is the same thing in social justice, because now they have to argue about who can represent them. And so you have to speak uh, a certain way. And if you don't speak a certain way in Islam, then you're not really a Muslim. Uh, so too, if you don't speak, uh, or if you are a detransitioned person, you were you transitioned to another gender, tr- detransitioned, now you're told you were never really trans. Or black people who speak out against the tenets of critical race theory are told they are not really black. He, he underlines, he out- unpacks all this in this incredible article in Newsweek, and I'm amazed again that Newsweek published the article. Go read it, it's fantastic. And the article ends with this, um, this idea. Uh, he says, the silent majority needs to become vocal very quickly so we need people to be brave enough to speak up and push back the long march through the institutions is sprinting into the final lap and it cannot be allowed to win take it from an ex-muslim so you got arthur Pulowski up in uh canada fighting for the right to have his worship experiences and you got a muslim uh, opinion 
uh, uh, writer in Newsweek saying, we've got to be aware that our rights are being taken away. Look, th this, is, this is important, friends. We've got to be aware of what's happening in our culture so that we can pray properly and we can speak properly and we can voice our, our, our beliefs and facts properly. Uh, you've got to be aware of it because it's coming to your schools. Biden is set, this is from uh, National Review Online, Biden is set to push critical race theory on U.S. schools. Your kids are going to come home with this education. They're going to be taught critical race theory. Uh, they're going to be taught the 1619 Project, which was which was a disaster of a, uh, a retelling and re a reinterpretation of American history to 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 paint America as a thoroughly racist country. Your, your kids are going to learn about the teachings of Ibram X. Kendi, uh, about anti-racism, uh, which advocates for a massive and indefinite expansion of reverse discrimination, which is more like anti-racism, and is going to come to your home. Be aware, fight back, call the school board, make your voice heard, and read this stinking book, Fault Lines by Dr. Vody Bakum. In the book, he talks about Obama's Father's Day speech in 2008. I don't know if you remember this, but in Obama's 2008 Father's Day speech, before he was president, he talked about the problems plaguing the black community. And he talked about a lot of things that were problematic for blacks in America. Not one point in the sermon or in the speech did Obama blame white America. And this was back when, <laughs> you know, uh, fighting for racial equality didn't didn't actually <laughs> adopt racist policies. And so Obama, and go watch the speech, he calls on black people to change their situation with what they can do. And 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 and, and in the in the book, Vody Bakum talks about this ad nauseum. You've got to check that chapter out. And he basically goes word for word uh, over Obama's speech. One of the phrases that he takes from the speech is the following. I'm going to read it to you. Quote, this is Obama. Quote, we know the statistics that children who grow up without, without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. Who? Kids without a father in the black community. They are more likely, this is continuing the quote, they are more likely to have behavioral problems, run away from home, become teenage parents themselves, and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. End quote. And that is the fact, friend. Fatherlessness not white people, are the problems with the underprivileged communities of our society, white and black. You understand that when you grow up without a father, the statistics prove that your life is going to go in a much more challenging direction. And, and we have to go back to when did this start to change too for black communities? Because you, you've got to go through the book and you'll find out that he talks about the fact that in the, in the history of America before 1960s, before the 1960s, um, blacks and whites pretty much were raising children in two-parent homes by the same statistics. But now, since the 1960s, the number of children being raised in single-parent homes in black families has doubled that of white families. Doubled. So black children, according to the data, 38% uh, of uh, African-American minors say that they grow up in a two-parent household, whereas white children say 74%. What happened in the 1960s? Well, the sexual revolution and then the war on poverty and the Civil Rights Act and all these kind of things that kind of made fathers unnecessary to the home because the government gave families money. That's what happened. The government created programs to make sure that they could pay and provide for families of underprivileged races, really. And, and, and you've got to look at the statistics because before the 1960s, um, black people were doing much more 
much better financially, much better socially than they are and they have been since the 1960s. Um, this is actually from uh, the Encyclopedia of Social Sciences in 1938. Only 11% of black children were raised with unwed mothers. Now it's one third, okay? And, and then um, you've got to also understand that there's, uh, there's so many statistics that prove how uh, the policies of the government um, have been much more detrimental to black families than, than racism or, or whiteness, which is, the, which is the culprit in CSJ. You, you've got to understand this. CRT, sorry, CRT. Uh, on page 162 of the book, Bauckham writes this. This is great. Those attempting to blame fatherlessness, crime, and a lack of black achievement today on the legacy of slavery must account for the fact that 100 years after slavery ended, blacks, according to many measures, were actually doing better than they have in the 60s, 60 years since the Civil Rights Act. Thomas Sowell notes, as of 1960, two-thirds of black American children were living with both parents. That declined over the years until only one-third were living with both parents in 1995 this was this was more pronounced among families in poverty where 85 percent of the children had no father present 85 percent man how then given the fact that the trajectory worsened worsened after 1960 can slavery and jim crow be the cause and that's exactly the truth that's exactly right he actually quotes from another book by uh jason riley another book you should get i read this i'm reading this book right now too uh false black power by jason l riley author of please stop helping us um and in that book jason riley says the following in the 199 in uh the 1913 edition of the negro almanac which marked the 50th anniversary of the emancipation proclamation it boasted that no other emancipation emancipated people have made so great progress in short in a short amount of time. It elaborated by comparing the progress of freed slaves in the United States to that of the Russian serfs, those were also slaves in Russia, who had been emancipated around the same time in 1861. 50 years after being freed, 14 million former serfs had accumulated some $500 million or $36 per capita and 30% could read or write. And he says this, by comparison, after 50 years of freedom in America, the 10 million Negroes in the United States have accumulated over $700 million worth of property and about $70 per capita. This is after 50 years of the Emancipation Proclamation. They were doing well. They were getting on their feet. They were increasing. And the, the Almanac reported, he goes on, using census data and 70% of them have some education in books. Robert Higgs, an, an economic historian, wrote in 2008 that even if black literacy a half century after emancipation reached only 50%, the magnitude of the accomplishment is still striking, especially when one recalls the overwhelming obstacles blacking, blocking black educational efforts for a large population to transform itself from virtually unlettered to more than half literate in 50 years ranks as an accomplishment seldom witnessed in human history. <laughs> I know that's a lot, but what he's basically saying is the problem was not whiteness. The problem was the government helping. The problem was the government stepping in and redesigning itself to be a state of fatherhood. And the government is not designed to be your father. And there is no, there is no biblical precedent in this book. There is no biblical precedent. Show me the verse where it says the government, the civil government is supposed to be your father. And when that happens, when you're, when the government becomes your father, you empower men to become boys because then men don't have to work. They don't have to put their hand to the plow. They don't have to provide for their families. They can play video games. They can horse around. They can adulterate. They can fornicate. They can do all kinds of things that actually destroy children and family. And this is important fact. 
These are important facts that people are no longer allowed to say because now it is just blanket whiteness that's the problem. It is white privilege that's the problem. And I will only admit to one kind of privilege is the privilege that I have enjoyed being raised by a mother and a father who stayed together and loved me and raised me. That is a privilege that I will absolutely um, take accountability for. Although, although there's a lot of people who grow up with two parent households and they become disasters because they don't understand the value of that family. And it is not a guarantee that your kids will always grow up to be great, uh, stronger members of society, but it is a far better chance. It offers you a far better chance. But we have to remember that there is a victim mentality being foisted upon uh, this culture uh, in the name of uh, critical race theory and social justice to make people dependent upon the government. That is a fact. That is a fact. And you know where it comes from? It comes from a certain group of white people. I will admit that white people are the problem. White liberals. White liberals love to create victimhood so that they can increase government to take care of you. And the reason why white liberals do this is a theological problem. It is not a philosophical or sociological problem versus a theological problem. And the theological problem is this, that a century ago, and you need to understand your history. I've read about this. I've studied this. A century ago, white liberals who used to go to white mainline churches, the big white churches on the main streets of America, that they're still there today, okay, from the, major, from the major denominational churches in America, the mainline white liberals took this book, and they Thomas Jeffersoned it. They took out all the miracles. They took out all the all the acts of God. They took out the Red Sea divine. They said the fables, myths. Uh, that's not actually true. Jesus didn't actually you know heal anybody. It was just a picture. They 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 fictionalized it so that he was inspiring to people who would follow him. And so they took all the miracles out of the Bible. And guess what happens when you take the miracles out of the Bible? Number one, you lose the gospel. Of course, we talked about that I think last week. But number two, you lose the sense that God can do great things in spite of where you come from. That's what you lose. And that's the greater loss, by the way, I think. Well, no, it's not the greater loss than losing the gospel. That's the greater loss. But the greatest loss, other than losing the gospel, is losing the fact, losing the idea that God can make something happen when there's low resources, when you don't have the mother and the father, when you come from the wrong side of the tracks, when you are not a privileged member of society. And in spite of your underprivileged, God can empower you. The scripture says that he takes those who are not to shame those who are. He takes the food foolish to shame the wise. This is the Bible's rhetoric. This is the Bible's narrative that God delights in taking underprivileged people and empowering them with his anointing to overcome the odds and become more than conquerors. But when you remove the miraculous from the Bible, you have to turn to helping, helping, helping. And if we can't get enough people to help them, we'll just force it through legislation and law and make the government people's daddy. And when the government is your daddy, men have the right now. They have been given the implicit permission to become boys. And when men become boys, society crumbles. It's no coincidence that men are under attack. It's no coincidence that fatherhood is under attack. It's no coincidence that heterosexual marriage is under attack, that heterosexuality is under attack, because this is the enemy's ploy to divide and conquer us, to destroy what defines us and makes us stable. And I will not hedge and I will not shut up about this. I will say this until I'm blue in the face because these things matter, because I loved this country for a long time and now I'm fearful for this country, but I'm not fearful for the church. I'm not fearful for the church one bit. God is going to bless and empower the church no matter what the country does. But we've got to see what's happening and we've got to speak up. 
by the way, you could speak up by sharing this content and you can speak up by helping us out and giving to this content. That would be very appreciative. Would you get over to the deepend.com or deepend.tv slash give and give? Would you help me out by cash tagging us at the Deep End TV? And also follow me on Twitter and uh, on Instagram at Tim Hatch Live. That's where I am. And I'd love to have you join me in the conversation on social media. But now all that I have said actually leads into where we're going. The famous moment of David's life other than David and Goliath, right? David and Goliath. There's another famous moment. David and not Goliath, but David and who? David and Bathsheba. And that leads me to the life of David. The title of this talk is very appropriate with what we just mentioned in the news. When men become boys. When men become boys. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the reason for the title is because there is a greater problem causing inequity in our country than racism. I, I fundamentally believe this. Fundamentally believe it. The, the greater problem is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality destroys families. It destroys children. It destroys women more than men. Uh, it is the most anti-feminist activity you can participate in. Sexual morality, immorality, okay, will destroy this country as it destroyed Rome, as it destroyed the Greeks, as it destroyed pretty much every civilization since the dawn of time. And in the scriptures, we are more, we are warned more about sexual morality than almost any other sin except the sin of unbelief and pride. We are more strongly warned against sexual morality in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, which talks about flee from sexual morality. Every other sin you commit outside your body, but sexual morality is a, person, a, sin, per, a sin against your own body. Uh, it says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and you, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so it's not your body. It's actually God's body. Right? And to the young pastor Timothy in Ephesus, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Why? Because it's that destructive. It's that devastating to your existence. Instead, he says, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the company of those who call on the Lord of pure heart. 2 Timothy 2.22. Sexual temptation has a tremendous power. I want you to think about it in the in the uh, in the uh, life of David. David beat Goliath. David beat the Philistines. No one could beat the Philistines. Saul couldn't beat the Philistines. David did. David won battles against greater armies than he had. David won battles against the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Hivites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. I mean, David never lost a battle until Second Samuel chapter eleven. David won battles against everybody. The only battle he couldn't win was a battle against sin, a battle against sexual temptation. His battle is our battle. His battle is the battle of every young man. And I would like to say this, that uh, sexual temptation is a man's battle, but it is also a woman's battle. And it will wreck your life. It will wreck your life. 2 Samuel 11 changes the narrative for David. Up until this point, he has been the hero of the Samuel narrative, the Samuel history. But now the, the book is going to turn, and it's going to turn on this one moment 
where David makes a horrible decision. So much can be gleaned from David's life, his courage, his faith, his warring ability, but perhaps the greatest lesson, and I don't, I'm not overstating here, perhaps the greatest lesson in the story of David is the untold damage and lasting damage that sexual morality will do to one's legacy. You want to be wealthy, you want to be prosperous, you want to be established, avoid, flee, run from sexual immorality. So we come now to the famous moment, David and Bathsheba. Let's go there. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. This is the first problem. (laughs) When kings went to do battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This is the first of his problems in this text, and it's the first uh, of the dangers of sexual morality, which we're going to go through five of them today. David sends others to fight his battles. That's a bad thing. Here's why. Men are made to fight. Men are, do you know one of the grow, most uh, fastest growing sports in the world today is uh, MMA, <laughs> mixed martial arts, UFC. Uh, it's also the only sport that's not getting political, which is fantastic. And, and, and consequently, droves of fans are moving away from the NBA, the MLB, and the NFL and becoming MMA fans. But anyway, um, Men are made to fight. We love fights. We love to see the conflict. We love to see the tension. And we love to see the battle. And we love to see the victory. This is how God programmed men. It is absolutely true that it is a different, there are different genders and uh, the biology and the physiology of men and women is different. Now, there's a backstory to this chapter, by the way. You need to understand. There's a backstory to this chapter in uh, 2 Samuel 11 with the Ammonites and Joab and, you, and actually and David. Okay, so there's a backstory between these people uh, that we skipped over. We didn't go through 2 Samuel 10, and that's because it was—I'm going to sum it up for you. Basically what happened is the king of the Ammonites died, and the son took over. The son's name was Hanan. And David decides, let me go and console Hanan over the death of his father. Let me show him some honor. So he sends a delegation, and Hanan is told by his uh, secretaries of state there, you know, David's coming to spy out the land. He wants to come and war you. So Hanan makes a terrible decision. He humiliates David's men. He uh, pulls out their be- or cuts off their beards and cuts off their garments in the middle so they were naked from the waist down. And this is a way of humiliating your enemy. And Hanan sends David's men, his delegation off. Well, David hears about this. And, and here's actually what it says when David hears uh, about what Hanan did to his men in 2 Samuel 10, 7. And David heard of it, and he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. And so all I want you to see here is that David heard of the humiliation of his men, and he doesn't go fight for his men. He sends Joab. He doesn't go fight. He sends Joab. This is a problem. This is a problem because men are made to fight. We are made to fight for the honor of our own personhood. We are made to fight for our wives. We are made to fight for our families. Think about every Disney movie before they got woke. (laughs) Uh, Every Disney movie was about a man fighting the dragon for the woman. This is because it is in the heart of man. Uh, And this is not just an American phenomenon. This is in other countries and cultures as well. The Cinderella story 
is a universal story. Uh, watch, as I am not too proud to admit, uh, Memoirs of a Geisha. Watch that movie, as I did with my wife, because I'm a loving husband. And I fight for her. <laughs> Watch that movie because it's a Cinderella story, but it's an entirely different culture where a man fights for a woman who had been held captive by a program and he wins the battle to get her as his wife. Now, feminists hate these stories now because it makes the man strong and the woman weak and blah, 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 all that stuff. Men are made to fight for women. They're made to fight for their family. They're made to work for their family. And when we don't work and when we don't go fight and when we don't and when we dis, and when we get alone, okay? When we are men are not good alone. And this is exactly what happens to David here in this passage. I I put it back up on the screen. He sent men to fight and he stayed at home. And one of the warning signs as we're going to go through five of them of sexual temptation is isolation. Isolation is a huge problem for men. It's a huge problem for humans, but it's a especially bad problem for men. I want you to consider in Genesis 2.18, there's no woman on the scene, and God says it is not good for man to be alone. That's Genesis 2.18. That's the first thing that God says is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. It's actually twice in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And you've got to understand that man is supposed to have a wife. He's supposed to have companionship. Very few men, and there are those, but very few men are called to singleness for life. Most are called to marriage and family. But what we see here in David is an isolation syndrome. He's getting more and more successful, so successful he can send a delegation to fight his battles, and that's not a good thing. Success, friend, can isolate you from people. There, by the way, there's something else that can isolate you from people. Not success, but the other extreme, failure. Failure can isolate you. You got to look for it in sexual temptation when it's going to come at you. It's going to come at you all the time, but especially when you are incredibly successful and when you, when, you, when you fail miserably. Watch out for those two moments. When Job has everything taken from him, he says, and he's at the rock bottom moment, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. The, uh, the implication being that when everything is successful, you're going to be tempted to lust and, and become sexually immoral. And when everything's falling apart, you're going to be tempted because what else do you have? Let me go have some fun, right? This is where you've got to watch out for isolation, success and failure. It's going to isolate you from people. Uh, that's why as a pastor of a large church, I have to have men around me. I'm in a small group with men, pastors in my church. I have friends that I can confide in and can, I can confess my sins to. Isolation will destroy you. You're not made to be alone. Be mindful of the extremes. David gets alone, and that's part of the problem. Verse 2, it says this, It happened late one afternoon while he's alone. He arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, I've been to this point. I've been to this geographic location, interestingly enough. Uh, I have a picture here from Israel. I took this picture in 2018 from where they believe David's palace was located. And overlooking the city of David, that's the Kidron Valley down at the bottom. This is the Kidron Valley here. And this is the city of David up here. And my perspective is David's palace. I have another view for you right here. You can see there again, there's the Kidron Valley that runs right through Jerusalem. And I'm, I'm standing where David's palace was. And so it's very possible that Bathsheba was right here uh, or right here or right here uh, or right here. Very easy to see into all these windows. You know, who knows where she was, but he had a perspective that was very easy to see from his palace of all the homes that were in uh, the city of David. And so isolation, he's isolated. But number two, and this is important, he's idle. 
And this is number two warning sign of sexual temptation. Sexual temptation is going to come to you when you are idle. The Bible resoundingly condemns idleness. Resoundingly. The Bible tells us that idleness leads to sin. It, it does. It leads to gossip. It leads to poverty. And it leads, most importantly, to the sin of sexual temptation. When you are not busy with your hands, you will find mischief. <laughs> uh, I like to say it like this. Uh, a heavy loaded truck drives straighter. Put more responsibility on a man and he will step up to the responsibility. Remove responsibility and he will run wild. He will go off road. He will swerve. He will de deviate from the path. Heavier trucks drive straighter. Men get married, get heavy. <laughs> get, get a wife that you got to uh, care for and love. Uh, get children that you have to provide for. I do this. It is a blessing to me. Uh, it is what keeps me on the narrow path because these kids are looking up to me, right? So anyway, idleness, huge problem, huge warning sign that sexual temptation is coming for you. Uh, Roger Ellsworth writes a book about David called The Shepherd King, and he has this great quote, and I want to put it up on the screen. The quote is, sins of omission usually precede sins of commission. Sins of omission. What is that, Pastor? Well, sins of omission, sorry, sins of omission are the things that you you know you should do, but you don't do. Sins of commission are the things that you know you shouldn't do, but you do. Got it? So this is uh, omission. I'm omitting what I should do. And commission, I'm committing what I shouldn't do. And what he says, and I love is a brilliant quote, that sins of omission, when you don't do what you should do, you are going to be a sitting duck to start doing what you shouldn't do. Let me make it more practical for you. You can avoid the temptation of sexual sin outside of marriage by intentionally pursuing your spouse and loving each other and spending time together and uh, dating each other and having sex with each other, okay? You've got to have sex with your spouse. That is a fact. Both men and women have got to do this according to the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You can avoid sexual temptation by giving yourself each to the other and your bodies aren't your own. Your bodies belong to your spouse. Listen to scripture. Second Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, your body... Men belongs to your wife. Wives, your body belongs to your husband. It's not yours anymore. When you say I do, you say this is yours. This is yours. We can avoid sexual temptation by pursuing each other in marriage. Uh, let's take it out of sexual temptation. We can avoid greed and consumerism by giving our tithes or bringing our tithes and offerings to God's house. It's doing what we should do keeps us from not doing what we shouldn't do. We can avoid gossip by being more proactive and more intentional to share our faith. Because when we share our faith and we tell people we're Christians and then we go gossip, they're gonna say, hey, aren't you a Christian? Why are you doing this? Oh, that's right, I'm a Christian. And you will be less inclined to gossip because you've made it public that you are a Christian. When you do what you should do, you will not be caught up doing in what you shouldn't do. Does that make sense? Uh, this is what Paul says to the Thessalonians in Second Thessalonians 3.10. He says, for when we were with you, we told you, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Mm -hmm. Got it right here? Because right now there is so much stimulus money running through our government that people are not working because they don't need to work. This is a fact. <laughs> when men do not have a job, when men do not work, they will get idle and they will get promiscuous. They will get disaster in their lives. 
I take you back to the 1990s. Bill Clinton certainly had his womanizing issues before he was president of the United States. But while he was president of the United States, he made a tremendous blunder. We all know, we all remember the sexual relations that he engaged in with Monica Lewinsky, a White House intern in 1995. A lot of people remember the sexual immorality. Not many people remember why they were alone in the first place. Do you know why they were alone in the first place? Because there was a government shutdown. In November 1995, Clinton and Gingrich, Speaker of the House, had a huge fight and they were arguing over Medicare and they shut down the government because both took their, uh, you know, put their stakes in the ground and said, we're not moving. And so they shut down the government and it was the disaster because guess what they did? They unemployed, they laid off 450, I'm sorry, 360 White House employees. The employee staff of the White House went from 450 to 90 overnight. And they actually moved Monica Lewinsky from the east wing of the White House to the west wing because she had to cover for the people who had been laid off. She wasn't even supposed to be there. The government shutdown, not working, put Lewinsky in Clinton's wing of the White House. And he was bored as heck because he didn't have anything to do during a shutdown. And then he saw her and there was nobody there to hold him accountable. And there wasn't many people. And he got alone and he got idle and he got disaster handed to him. Young ladies, find yourself a man who works full time. <laughs> that if he doesn't have a job, run, run like hell. If he doesn't have a job, I'm not giving you permission to harass your man. If he likes to chill out with the video game after work, if he's got a job and he wants to play video games for an hour after work or three hours, well, maybe not three, two hours after work, let him chill out unless he's got kids, he's got to take them to sports and all that kind of stuff, but let him chill out. Let him have his, let him have his decompression time. But I am telling you that when a man doesn't work, it's a disaster for the family. It's a disaster for the family. And if a man is able-bodied, he should work. As Paul says, if they don't work, they don't eat. And then he says, we hear that some of you walk not uh, among, walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And busy body and sexual morality that's the result of not being busy with what you should do. So we've got to continue. We're never going to get through this. Uh, so it said, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? This is verse three, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So he sent and inquired. That's the, okay. He sent and inquired about the woman. And he's told that she's Uriah, the, the, the uh, wife of, I'm sorry. She's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And I just want you to see this next verse. Verse four, David sent messengers and took her. You were just told that she was someone's wife and you send messengers and you take her. Okay, this leads me to number three, warning sign of te sexual temptation, intentionality, isolation, idleness, intentionality, making plans to be with them. When you make your schedule so that it fits theirs, when you formulate a strategy to look and leer, when you go to the gym when you know they are there, when you go to the water cooler, when you know she or he is there, watch out for this. This is intentionality. You are starting to take the steps into adultery. I think I think you back to Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good, then she lusted after it. Romans 13, 14 says, don't make provision for the flesh. Don't make provision for it. Don't plan. Psalm 119, uh, Psalm 119, 37, David will say, turn my eyes from worthless things. He, say, he writes this psalm after the Bathsheba event. Turn my eyes. Don't let me look. Don't, don't let me plan. Turn my eyes from worthless things. 
Psalm 119.37. So David's told who she is, and he still sends messengers and takes her and lays with her. And now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh, a couple of things. First off, she's referred to as the woman, which is a way of saying that that's how David treated her. She's just the woman, she, he, just an object of his desire. And she was purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Two things. Number one, it shows us that um, Bathsheba is actually following the law very closely because after a woman's period, according to the law, she was unclean for seven days. So she's, uh, and then by the way, number two, biologically, she doesn't have a chance of being pregnant if she's purifying herself from her period. Do you understand? So there's no chance anybody else got her pregnant is what this text is saying. Number one, she's a noble woman following the law. I know a lot of people like to make the argument that because she's bathing in visible sight, uh, she's part of the problem. That's not what the text is showing. I, I don't agree with that interpretation. I think that's a wrong interpretation. I'm sure somebody in the comments is already throwing that out there. I don't think that's right. Uh, the, 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 the text goes out of its way to show she's following the law and David pursues and gets her and brings her to himself and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this, she's not at fault here. I'm sorry. I don't fall for that nonsense. I think we... Oh, I hate to use the phrase, but we victim blame her in that sense. But anyway, uh, she's doing the right thing. It's, 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 it's David that's not doing the right thing. And, and by the way, she also does give a, a nice little teaching for beautiful women. She's a be Can we just say she, beautiful women exist? Bathsheba was one of them. They're still around. And we're very thankful for beautiful women um, and the beauty that God gives women is the highest of creation. I think according to the creation uh, narrative of Genesis chapter one, women are the last thing created, thus the most beautiful on the earth. But there's a warning for beautiful women and all women really in the scriptures in 1 Peter 3, three to four. He says, don't let your adorning be the external, the braiding of hair, putting on a gold jewelry, the, gold, the clothing you wear. Don't let what you think is beautiful about you be what's on the outside, but let your adorning, let, let what you think is beautiful about you be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, this is what Bathsheba is doing, as far as I'm concerned, in the text. She isn't trying to make herself sexually attractive to David. He's going after her. And I want to say something about this text because a lot of, a lot of pre preachers misinterpret this text to say don't wear jewelry and don't wear fine clothes. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying don't let your value come from that stuff. And ladies and beautiful ladies particularly, Peter does not say this to demean you. He says this to protect you and empower you. Um, there is a double-edged sword to beauty for a woman. There is a double-edged sword. Here it is. Number one, your, be your, your beauty is a, a gift from God. It's a wonderful and beautiful gift from God. But number two, your beauty can enable you to neglect the development of inner character. Because men will just fawn over you because you're beautiful. And then you won't be forced to produce any character. How to be, how to be rejected. Rejection can produce character. How to not be loved. That produces character. When people don't like you, it produces character. And so when everybody fawns all over you, it can, it can undercut your ability and your willingness or your need to develop inner character. Secondly, it will empower men to objectify you. And when you make your beauty everything about the outside ladies, you are telling men that, that is, you're, you're cultivating in men the worst of passions toward you. I'm not saying don't decorate yourself. I'm not saying, as my father-in-law loves to say, if the barn needs painting, paint the barn. 
I am saying don't let the outside be what you obsess about because that's where your value is. No, your adorning can be what's on the inside and you can be beautiful on the outside, both and, right? Anyway, verse 6, 2 Samuel 11. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. She's pregnant. He's like, what, what now? What do I do now? Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Job was, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Again, he's isolated. He's disconnected from what he should be doing. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. So David is trying to get this guy to sleep with his wife to cover up the sin. Now, notice that it says it's Uriah the Hittite. Why is that important? Because that means that he's not a Jew. He's not a son of Abraham. He's not a covenantal son. He's not a biological Jew. He's not part of the covenantal community. But yet, we want to know from the text, what kind of man is this man who is not a Jew? And the text goes out of its way to show us that Uriah, inwardly, is far more Jewish than David in this text. Inwardly, Uriah is a man of the covenant. I want to show you. This is so cool. This is amazing. Verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, why didn't you go? (laughs) You came from a long journey. Why didn't you go down to your house? What kind of man is Uriah? Here's the kind of man he is. Uriah said in verse 11 to David, the ark and of is, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping out in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, that day and the next. And what you're seeing here is that a foreigner, a Hittite, not a member biological member of the covenant community of Abraham is more attached to the God of the ark, the the Lord, the Yahweh, and the cause of Israel than David is in this moment. By the way, this is one of those texts that proved to me biblical inspiration by the Holy Spirit because men would not, the Israelites would not come up with the story. They would make the foreigner look bad and the Jew look good. But everything about the story makes the foreigner look good and the Jew look bad. Everything about the story makes David look bad and Uriah the Hittite the foreigner look good, which gives me confidence that these texts were not thought up by Jews in the ancient world. They were inspired to Jews by the Holy Spirit to tell people the truth and to give us spiritual principles, the word of God. Verse 13, and David invited him and he ate and drank in his presence so that he made him drunk. Now he's resorting to hard liquor. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but did not go to his house. This is David just doing worse and worse every step of the way. Guys, it doesn't get any better. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Mm. Verse 15, the letter he wrote this, set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Ouch. Next verse. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Can you see what happens? David literally hands Uriah his death warrant. And Uriah takes it. (laughs) Uriah takes his death warrant to the battlefield. The king of Israel is trying to cover up his sin through someone else's death. In this moment, David is the anti-Christ. In this moment, he is everything Christ is not. David kills to steal a man's wife. 
Christ comes and lays down his life for that which was not his wife, but becomes his wife through his self-sacrifice, the church. You see how this also can point to Christ just in an anti-contrasting you know, moment? So David has sent word. Joab sent and told David, verse 18, the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the news about the fighting to the king, then the king anger, king's anger rises, and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? And he goes on about, don't you remember that this happened at this point? Uh, skipping down. Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Job sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In verse 25, and David sent to the messengers, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. Just note displease right here because that word's going to come up in just a second. Don't let this matter displease you. The sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. This is the first battle that David's ever lost. I think it's amazing to note that because this is the cost of infidelity in, in, in sexual morality in a man's life, in a family's life, in a culture's life. You start to lose the battle. And America's been losing this battle since the 1960s and maybe even before that. We're losing the battle to sexual morality. We're losing our minds. We're losing our, we are, we are flipping crazy now. Men are women. Women are men. <laughs> Gender is a spectrum. Uh, any, anything can make a family. Now we're, now we're hearing about throuples. Throuples are a thing now. People are getting into three-way marriages. I read about three men who are, who are adopting a baby girl. I read about a mother who is having her gay son's baby through his partner's sperm being in vitro fertilized into her egg and somehow producing an offspring for her gay son and his lover. I mean, this is, we're losing the battle as a country, as a culture, as a world, because we in this culture are obsessed with sex. We are obsessed with sexual morality. We are, be, we are men becoming boys, women becoming girls. We are trying to play like we are teenagers into our forties and fifties. And we are given countless examples of celebrities whose lives are in shambles because of this nonsense, because of this perpetual adolescence. And at what point do we wake up and say, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm not going to let this happen to my life, to my family. Uh, number four thing, warning sign of sexual temptation is indifference toward what really matters. Sexual sin will blind you to what really matters in your life. It really will. It'll make primary things secondary and secondary things primary. It will blind you. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. This is a battle that you're in. You're in war with your, with your passions in your flesh. Okay, I, I just mentioned Hollywood, but it really is your problem's inside of you. The problem's inside of all of us. And we have to fight this battle. We have to fight and win this battle as, as passionately as we can. Going on in the story, verse 26, when the, Uriah, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and he bore, and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David says to Joab, don't let that battle being lost displease you. But now it says, the text says, 
what David had done displeased the Lord. And Nathan comes and confronts. And we're going to end pretty quickly here. Verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of uh, his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. In verse 4, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Um, Nathan confronts David. And this is important because in ancient Israel, they were distinct from all other nations of the ancient world because the prophets actually did have the authority to confront the kings of the nation. In the, in the ancient world, kings were think, thought of as gods. Pharaoh was thought of the god of Egypt. And, and likewise, according, to, uh, it was the same in all the other foreign nations of the ancient world. But, but David and Israel uh, are actually, they have this check and balances thing going on where prophets can confront kings and tell them they're wrong. And David hears this story. And by the way, Nathan speaks about this narrative, this, this story, because it's pointing to the power of story, which Jesus will implement in his parable teachings later on. Stories have power. When David hears the, the story of the very same thing that he just did in a different way, verse 5 says, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore to the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. He's enraged. And you have to see, it's number five on my list of warning signs of sexual temptation. When, when we get hotly enraged by the sin in someone else, usually it's because we see the sin in ourselves. And that's number five. Warning sign of sexual temptation, intense anger over similar offenders. I think that Christians and particularly Christian leaders get over, overly incensed uh, at the sins that they are likely to commit. There, there have been many preachers who rail against the sin of homosexuality, and then they're found out to be homosexuals themselves. Many, many preachers will rail against the sins of greed, but they're the ones trying to buy private jets. Many preachers will rail against the sin of adultery, but they're the ones with the girlfriends on the side. We have to remember something, and it's an important truth that I want to share with you. It's not anger towards sin that saves us. It's the blood and power of Christ that saves us. It's not getting mad at sin. You can get mad at sin all you want. You need the blood and the power of Christ to save you from sin. You want to be set free from uh, the conscience that leads you astray in your mind, your heart, your willful, lustful desires. You want to be set free? Turn to the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works. You want to be set free from sexual sin? Turn to the blood of Jesus. Revelation 1.4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You want to turn from your sins. You want to turn away. You want to get power over sexual temptation. You turn to the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, Father, in the name of Jesus, free me from this sin through your son's blood. Free my conscience. Cleanse me. 
Dave is going to talk about this in Psalm 51. We're going to get to that, unfortunately, in two weeks. I'm sorry, guys, two-week break here. But nonetheless, we'll get to it next time on the deep end. I bring you back to 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Here's how I sum that up today in this deep end episode. Get yourself back to church. Stop using the excuses. Stop treating groceries as more important than the word of God. Get back to church. Get in community. Get out of this COVID fear mindset and get in community and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with other people. That's going to keep... Stop not doing what you should do because if you don't, you will start doing what you shouldn't do. This is about your future. And David's history is going to turn on 2 Samuel 11. And everything is going to slowly deteriorate and fall apart from this point forward. It's bad news for David going forward, unfortunately. And this is the reason why. Because he gave himself over to the lust of the flesh. This is the problem with our culture. This is where inequity comes from. When a parent, when a, when a mom has to raise the children, the father is committing all kinds of sexual morality or the other way around. Children suffer, finances suffer, families suffer, culture suffers, neighborhoods suffer. And right now we have a government that's more than willing to step in and be your savior. And at some point that government is going to run out of money. And then we're going to really be in trouble. I don't say this because I'm political. I say this because I'm a pastor and it matters. And we need to wake up, repent, and plead the blood of Jesus over our children and our families and our marriages, period. That's the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Check it out, thedeepend.tv. Get some swag, get some stuff if you want to. Uh, follow our social media accounts. And if you would do me the tremendous favor of supporting The Deep End, you help me pay for all this stuff. You help me <laughs> grow the audience and grow the show. So your giving matters. Check out the book at timhatchlive.com slash books. Check out the swag. See you next time, two weeks from now on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. The Deep End is brought to you by listeners and viewers just like you. Consider giving today. Hey, if you don't have a home church, come and check us out at one of our campuses. Visit waterschurch.org and you can find a time and location that fits your schedule. Tune in next week for The Deep End with Tim Hatch.